final uh, evacuation planes have left Kabul airport and Afghanistan's government has fully ceded power to the Taliban. Amongst the international community worries about what that transition of power means for the people of Afghanistan have centred around the rights of women, access to education for the whole population and continuing prosperity for the country. However, what this means for health is still uncertain. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to talk about that, I'm joined by Nadia Axia, an Afghan scientist and epidemiologist now living in the US, who has written extensively on the health of her home country. Nadia, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Duncan. I'm really excited to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about your your background and, and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so I uh, did my my training in biostatistics and epidemiology. I studied at the University of Toronto, where I did my PhD in epidemiology. Um, and um, the topic, actually, that I did my PhD on was maternal and child health and nutrition in Afghanistan. Uh, so what I did was I studied the progress that the country has made in these areas since 2001. And at that point, the data uh, that I had went up until you know the year 2015 or so. So in a 15-year in a period, what is the progress this country has made? Um, so I studied this for seven years. I did my PhD you know, over a long period of time, um, spent quite a bit of time trying to understand the context, the history, uh, the conflict history, the, the climate and so on in Afghanistan, of Afghanistan and, and how that's influenced uh, health gains in, in maternal and child health and nutrition in the country. Um, I'm now uh, faculty at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, where I work broadly on maternal and child health in low and middle income countries. Um, and I still have a passion for and, and do work on Afghanistan as well. Hmm. I mean, let's delve into that because, you know, as you've said, Afghanistan's been um, the stage for conflict for for so long, you know, right back to the British Empire, which ravaged the country and the invasion of the USSR in the 70s. And there's been internal conflict. Um, The Taliban were in power for a while. Um, It's not a history that would, you would think, would promote um, good health for the people. So could you give us a sort of baseline um, of where Afghanistan um, has been up up until recent history. So, in two thousand one, after emerging from a period of um, you know Soviet invasion, internal conflict that was going on for years, and then a Taliban governance that spanned multiple years as well. Um, by the time the Americans uh, came into the U.S. into Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan was really just crumbling, uh, a disaster of a country, um, systems were broken, um, and they had been for, for many, many years. So the baseline at that was at that time was really poor. And in fact, the estimates show that maternal mortality, women dying during childbirth in Afghanistan at that time was 1,600 women per 100,000 live births. And that was one of the highest in the world. Um, and just to give you an idea, you know, higher income countries, that rate is so low, as low as 20 or 10 per 100,000 live births. So Afghanistan, it was 1,600, so one of the highest in the world. Um, And in addition to that, child mortality rates were also very high. Malnutrition at that time, um, child malnutrition in 2003, 2004 was about 60%. So a form of chronic child malnutrition called stunting. 
um, which you know is a manifestation of chronic uh, uh, nutritional deficits for a child. Um, more than one in two children were stunted in Afghanistan, and that is a huge problem. 60% of kids were stunted at that time. Um, in addition to that, there was a survey done in in, uh, in 2005 on disability that showed that about, um, I think at that time, 3% of the population had um, severe disabilities, um, which is, is hugely problematic. And in fact, over time, just to kind of skip a, ahead a bit, I, I did a survey in 2019 in disability. Um, uh, I did a survey in 2019 that was supported by the Asia Foundation, um, where we found that upwards of 80% of Afghans report some type of disability. And the severe disability group was about 17% of the population. So this has actually increased since 2005 significantly. Um, and that is a huge problem. This includes cognitive disabilities, functional disabilities, physical disabilities, all types of disabilities. And so to live in a country where 80% of the population has some kind of disability that they themselves are reporting, that you can only imagine what, what has been going on there. Um, and then just to talk a little bit about the healthcare, you know, system in 2001 as a baseline, it, it was non-existent. It was broken. Um, there was no sort of structure system put in place. There were NGOs like Save the Children and others who had been present um, throughout the conflict and the wars, of course, providing uh, humanitarian um, support. Um, but, you know, there was no formal system, public health care system where women could go and, and travel to um, and get the care that they need for themselves and their kids and their families. So since then, uh, a lot of money has been invested in Afghanistan from, from many, many donors all over the world. And, um, you know, looking from 2001 to, to present day or up until, you know, a month ago or so, Afghanistan had made significant progress um, in, in many, many outcomes. So just to give you a, a flavor of what that looks like, that maternal mortality ratio that I mentioned was 1,600 per 100,000 live births in 2001. Um, and now it had gone to about 400. Um, so it's still very high, but it had reduced, you know, significantly dropped. So that, that, that shows that the country can make progress. They've made progress. Um, child mortality rates dropped by about 30%. Child stunting, um, chronic malnutrition that I mentioned, went down from 60% of children to 40%. So still very high, um, but there was progress made. The disability rates that I mentioned to you, and unfortunately those have gone up, but you could just imagine disability is a function of people's mental health and well well-being and, and their physical health. And those things have never really recovered in Afghanistan. Afghanistan throughout this period in the past 15 years has continued to have conflict, political instability, um, you know, and, you know, so to think about how that's impacted people's morbidity or their uh, disability status, you know, it, it's it's had a negative impact. Um, impact. So disability has increased, um, but the healthcare system that Afghanistan has been able to build over time in the past 15 years has been remarkable. And in fact, Afghanistan was actually, you know, an example for other parts of the world on how one can rebuild really, really quickly. And I've published papers where, you know, we've, we've said like Afghanistan could be an example for other countries that are emerging from conflict or that are emerging from a period of instability because the way they've been able to do this so quick um, has really, really been impressive. And, and, you know, how they've been able to do this is, of course, the money, the donor funds are important. You can't do anything without money. Afghanistan is a poor country. They don't have their own economy, domestic you know, economy or money is just very low. 
and that, and that's something that takes time, decades to build. But the the donor resources have been um, essential and just critical to the progress in the healthcare system. But with that money, what Afghanistan's been able to do is is build the public healthcare system. They adopted this model where they contracted health service delivery out to NGOs. So these are international NGOs, but also national NGOs that have existed in the country. It's their contracting out model. Um, and essentially, so the idea is that, you know, these NGOs that are already present and can, you know, they're, they continue to grow and become more present across the country. Um, they're in these remote and isolated populations in Afghanistan. They have relationships with the communities where they exist. Um, and so they, you know, people trust them and they'll go there. So this network of NGOs exists in Afghanistan and grew over time. The, the healthcare system model was let's contract the services out to the, the NGOs so they could deliver them to the people in their communities where they're already a trusted source. Um, and that has been really, really important because in mm. Afghanistan, you know, there are several factions still, the Taliban and other groups who over time, you know, they did not trust the government. They did not support the government. Um, and so to go to they would not encourage their woman to go to a public health care uh, facility that was run by the government or some other facility run by the government. So there was government opposition in the past 15 years. So this model that Afghanistan adopted where they contracted out to uh, NGOs that existed that were sort of independent of the government was actually quite uh, was actually quite smart um, because they they were actually they were a lot <laughs> it enabled them to to scale up the healthcare services really quickly um, with some trust and accountability. Mm. You mentioned the maternal outcomes and often improved maternal outcomes come with the financial empowerment of women and um, education as well. Was that a big uh, a big oh, part absolutely. of, of um, the you know, Over time, too? you know, girls have been uh, put back in schools during the time of the Taliban governance. You, you know, as we know, schools were shut down um, and there was... Uh, women's mobility um, and access to services outside the house um, and it, it was just limited their them working in the workforce alongside men was limited as well so over this time you know there are several markers of women's empowerment that have improved girls have been um, allowed to go back to school um, the secondary school enrollment of girls so girls going beyond primary school to secondary school has also increased significantly um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head but you know two three fold it has increased over that time so not only are young girls going to school initially but they're also staying um, in school and during this time the adolescent fertility rate has gone down and so and this is actually linked to education because often girls drop out of school so that they can get pregnant they get married they get pregnant um, and so we use the adolescent fertility rate as a marker of whether uh, girls are staying in school longer um, and, and 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 we've seen that fertility rate has gone down as well uh, in addition there are women in the parliament um, so women are in the workforce, they, they're seeking opportunities. We've seen a woman, um, nurses, midwives, doctors, you know, the, the female counterparts to men has improved significantly over time. Um, there are women uh, in, in parliament and, and other parts of uh, Afghanistan's government as well. And also importantly, women are uh, have started working in NGOs and in the private sector. So in a lot of these NGOs that I mentioned, you know, there are women there on the ground also traveling to provide health care, which in the past they haven't been able to do. 
Um, and they, they're working alongside men. And so there have been tons of gains in, in education and women's empowerment that we've seen. And I think also financial autonomy has improved for women as well because they're in the workforce. Uh, they're making money. They're able to use that money to take decisions for themselves and their families and their children. Um, so there's a social autonomy that has improved and also financial autonomy uh, over time in Afghanistan. And it has absolutely been critical to the reductions in maternal mortality that we've seen. Mm. Now, you mentioned there the fact that the healthcare model involves publicly financed but sort of outsourced for for the actual um, work of, of healthcare to international NGOs. And, you know, as stories have come out about what's happened in the transition, it's become apparent that, you know, despite all the money put into Afghan military, um, they weren't really able to stand on their own um, without American military support in, in some vital areas. Um, is it a worry then that without this international NGO support, other you know groups from outside Afghanistan who might now be pulling out, um, that the healthcare system will will collapse under this? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm writing a piece right now with my colleagues um, uh, who I published with uh, about Afghanistan before in the past. Um, I mean, we're trying to put that out um, soon this weekend in the Washington Post or New York Times where we talk specifically about this. The World Bank has pulled out their funding for Afghanistan's healthcare system. And with that, several other donors have stepped away or are, are continuing to step away. Um, and what's gonna happen is that there's no money and people are gonna stop coming to work. So absenteeism is going to increase, not to mention the, the mass exodus of the health professionals who have fled in the past couple of weeks uh, because they're worried that there are targets and people have tried to evacuate to many different parts of the world. So there's a brain drain. In addition to that, now you know, people are there's no money to pay salaries um, for the health professionals. So there's gonna be absenteeism. Um, and so what's gonna happen is there's gonna be nobody to work in these health facilities. And not to mention the, you know, there's the, the salary to the staff component, but then also the money to purchase commodities and supplies and to support the infrastructure is going to be gone. So, you know, we, we've we projected in our paper that we're putting out that within a matter of months, Afghanistan's healthcare, or maybe even weeks, Afghanistan's healthcare system will completely collapse. There's no money. Um, and without money, you can't do anything. And ultimately, who's gonna suffer? The people who've been suffering all along, children, women, their families, the poor and the helpless who have no choice and no decision about what's going on around them. They, they, they're just dealing with it. Um, so that, that's a really real fear. And we actually encourage, you know, this is an open call and encourage World Bank um, and all donors who have supported Afghanistan's government um, and healthcare system specifically over the past 15 years. Don't leave. Don't leave. They need you. Those people need you. Um, and and instead of abandoning ship, you know, we have to become we have to be more innovative and creative about how we can support them. So maybe maybe we don't want to give the money directly to the new government anymore. That's fine. But there are other ways. What about the NGOs um, who, are, who are in existence right there? Perhaps the contracts, the money can be given to them directly so that they can continue to provide health care services. I think, you know, we we should be innovative. We should be creative and we should be diligent to ensure that we continue to protect um, and provide healthcare services to the people that need it most. And Afghanistan is not a playground. You know, you can't just 
people can't just pick up and drop off whenever they want. You pick up and come and pump a lot of money and help them build and then say, see you later. This, this is not a toy. Um, these are people, real people who live there, who are going to die um, and get sick and they need to be taken care of. This is a humanitarian crisis, you know, one of the largest of our times. Mm. And, 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 you know, we can't abandon them. They're, they're, we have to be creative. We have to think of ways that we can continue to, to protect those services. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about quite high level stats here, country level things, and obviously that can hide a lot of variation um, on the ground. And within Afghanistan, there were areas that have been under Taliban or, or other control for um, a long time. And I wonder if you have any information, any data about about those regions that, that might help us um, understand how a Taliban government might run a healthcare system, might try and look after the, the health of their, their population. Yeah, um, so you're absolutely right in that there have been um, uh, their heterogeneity and how Afghanistan has performed in health over time and also many other indicators. Um, and in fact, I've published a, a few studies where I've looked at the impact of conflict on health in Afghanistan, even in the, you know, in this, this last 15 year period, because conflict was um, existed in pockets of the country, in large parts of the country sometimes. So it, it's been there. Um, and, and, you know, what we found that what we've what we have found is that um, in those regions where conflict was uh, existing, you know, moderate or severe conflict, uh, there was less gains in access to essential services, such as a woman having an antenatal care visit, uh, a woman having a skilled attendant when she delivers, um, also women being able to attend school, um, and you know, and access to other essential services like vaccines as well have been weak in those areas. So. It is true um, that in the conflict-prone areas, what we call them, um, the conflict-prone areas, the gains in some of these indicators have been have been lower. Um, however, uh, interestingly enough, in the really severely conflict-afflicted places in Afghanistan, in a study that I published just a couple of years ago, I found that they actually had more gains in indicators. Um, so things such as access to vaccines and um, access to community treatments of certain conditions. And so we wondered about why we think, you know, why this might be. Um, and one of the reasons uh, is because those areas have lots of support from NGOs and extra funding um, because they're highly turbulent areas. Um, they're, they're, they're target areas uh, for donors um, thinking, OK, this area in Kandahar or wherever it might be has tons of conflict. Uh, we need to send additional resources there. So they've they've been supplied with the resources. But what to me, what that shows is that with the right resources, gains can still be made. Um, so so the resources were sent and then also the the factions or groups that were there um, that were creating the conflict there was conversations among them about protecting women's and children's health and why that's important and there was that you know community building relationship building piece of it um, and importantly the the NGOs had a, a really uh, a critical role there so those NGOs I, I think I mentioned before they they've been in existence in those areas for a long time and they were sort of 
core um, and critical in talking to these groups and saying like, look, you guys can do what you're doing, but we need to provide these healthcare services um, to these to, to the civilians. Um, and so they'd sort of been core in, in having those conversations. Um, so I think that in addition to the resources has um, encouraged some of the gains to, to continue in those areas. Um, and yeah, some of those areas uh, were under the command of the Taliban at that time. So to me, what that shows is that I think gains can be made with the Taliban government. I think despite what, you know, everything else, I think these people care. I think they're passionate. I think they can be reasonable people. Um, and, and and we need to have a dialogue. You know, this is no longer a, a, we don't want to talk to the Taliban uh, conversation. This is no, they are there. They're the governance. There needs to be a dialogue and discussion about like, okay, let's figure out the priorities and figure out how we're going to go about doing this. And I think, uh, I do think that that conversation can happen. And I do think they're a reasonable, reasonable group who care about their people. Um, and it just needs to be approached in the right way. Mm. And that's something you're trying to do is provide the data that you've been collecting over these these last years to the new Taliban government to help them inform that. Could you tell us a little bit about what you, you plan to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've done uh, a ton of research on Afghanistan in the past several years and published quite a bit. Um, and these data, they are recent data. They're not old data. They're not historical. They're not out of date. They've been collected in the past, you know, five to six years. So they're current data um, and they talk about what's currently going on in Afghanistan. And I think this is the data that we can use to understand, you know, what are the current issues? Um, what, Where does Afghanistan have challenges? What are the health outcomes we should be concerned with? Um, and, and to think about that and come up with a plan. And some of the issues are things like I mentioned, the disability um, inequalities that exist, regional inequalities, income inequalities, um, uh, non-communicable diseases are rampant in Afghanistan. Uh, we still have an issue with communicable diseases such as polio um, and, and measles and other conditions. So there's several issues that exist. And I think we can use this as a sort of baseline to plan um, and figure out a plan, you know, um, a baseline to figure out a plan for the future. Now, what I hope to do is to take some of this research and really break it down. You know, in each one of those studies I've published, there's so much data um, that's gone into it, but also there, there are so many um, different types of outcomes and different types of analyses that we've done that illustrate different points. And so what I wanna do is take that and break that down um, into messages that uh, I can share back with the Taliban and you know uh, others who are in power in Afghanistan and even just the general community um, to say like, look, this is your data. Um, this is what it shows. And, and these data, don't, they don't lie. Uh, the data are collected well. Um, so let's talk about this and figure out a plan for the future. And I'm really hoping um, to have, you know, create some videos um, or some content for each one of my papers with those, you know, those data and those key messages and really um, the recommendations that are emerging from that data and to share that back with these communities in English, but importantly, in local languages. Um, and I myself, in fact, speak Pashto. And the majority of the Taliban, they are Pashtun ethnically. Um, so that is the, the most commonly um, spoken language in the group. Um, and I'm fortunate in that I do speak Pashto. A lot of diaspora don't speak the local languages because I spent so many years abroad. Um, but my father encouraged me to learn Pashto my whole life, so now I can speak it. So what I hope to do is these pieces that I create, um, the messages, I wanted to be able to do them in Pashto as well. Um, and I think that's important because we can't expect the literacy levels in the country, especially in this group, um, the, the new government to be very high. Um, and and so we need to 
send messages um, in a way that's going to be accessible to them. And I think, um, you know, interpreting the data and, and setting up recommendations and having that dialogue in Pashto will be really important to, to make sure that um, I can get those messages across. You know, I really hope the new government uh, makes strong partnerships and allies around the world um, because one cannot do this in isolation. Um, you know, they cannot think that they're, they're now government and they can do what they want in this country and they don't want support from this, this and this. I think there are many well-wishers of Afghanistan um, who, despite everything else, would are willing to stand up and support. Um, and I think the Taliban government should really consider that seriously. Um, you know, build partnerships and, and, and make allies with people who can help. And these, you know, these people not only have the resources that can support the country in the meantime, you know, as they work towards building their economy, um, but they have the experience of the world, of running their countries, of and, and you know, what's worked well and what hasn't. Um, and the Taliban doesn't have that yet. They haven't officially become a fully functional government ever. This is their first opportunity to do that. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage them to to think about that and to to not push people away, um, but to bring people together and, and to say, okay, you know, how can we do this together? And, and people do want to help um, and support, um, to support, support the group. And then I think as part of that, I, I would just say that there are real issues, um, acute issues that flare up, such as COVID-19. You know, COVID-19 has affected the entire world and Afghanistan's not excluded. Um, unfortunately, because there's so many other issues um, going on in Afghanistan, COVID-19 falls to the bottom of the list. But it's also a huge problem when people are getting sick and dying from COVID. It's difficult to you know disentangle the cause of death from the multitude of other diseases in the country, but it's happening. You know, it's it's in and I think the the new government needs to be thinking about that. Um, you know, pandemic preparedness and and protection of their community. So when these acute things flare ups happen, that they can they can have some kind of contingency plan. They can have something in place so they can they can protect their people. Um, and that requires immediate attention. This is not a, a five-year plan for COVID. This is immediate. This is happening right now. Um, and I think you know I would just encourage that that's something that the Taliban takes as number one priority, you know, amongst other priorities, but really number one priority because this is this is a global pandemic and it's what we're dealing with at the moment. Um, and people are suffering from this. Um, and, you know, we know people who are already sick, whether they're malnourished or they're older and they have other diseases, they are most at risk of severe illness from COVID and from death. Um, and, and there is, you know, there are multiple diseases in Afghan civilians. So, the Afghan government needs to take this really seriously right now and, and think about you know, immediate action um, to, to help protect people during this pandemic. Nadia, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk to us on the podcast. Um, we'll put a, a link to a selection of your, your papers in the podcast text. So uh, if you're listening and you want to read more, do check that out. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts from. <laughs>